in the trenches every day cause I stay on my grind If they hate the element cause they won't stop my shine See me running to that money, I just want what's mine No, I don't waste no time, no, I don't waste no time Welcome back in the Feed Your Brain podcast. My name is Max, and I'm happy to have a very special guest uh, that's in the podcast. Thanks to Brian, who actually connected us uh, on that part. Uh, I'm really happy to have Rick Smith uh, from Axon on the podcast. Uh, he is um, he's a very well-known um, founder from the States, uh, actually a man that is wanting to improve human life. Uh, he was... For everybody that is not aware of what the company does, he was one of the co-founders or he invented the taser that is used around the globe to prevent police and uh, the preventive police and other people from killing people and instead just um, using a different system to, to harm them in a good way, to, to, to talk to them at least and not kill them. So I think it's a great technology. And um, Rick is somebody that is wa wanting to use technology for good for humankind and is also bringing out a new book, which is called The End of Killing, uh, very soon. So we will talk a little bit about technology, about his company, about his story, about the book. So there's lots of stories to cover. Welcome, Rick, uh, to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Max. It's great to be here. Yes, it's also a pleasure. It's um, really great. I'm honored to have you here. Um, maybe for the for the people who are not aware yet of what you are doing, what you have been doing in the past, maybe you can give the people a couple of minutes to 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 walk through your story and uh, your view on 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 humankind. <laughs> yeah, you know, I love it. Much like uh, you know, you got inspired. As I understand it, you're even younger than I was when I started this company. I was 23, okay. uh, and I was living in Bel I was living in Belgium. Uh, going to school, and I discovered that many Europeans uh, had a very dim view of the United States because of what they saw on television about gun violence. And, um, you know, everybody, of course, would talk about their home. And a lot of my new friends were literally afraid to go to the United States because they'd seen so much about gun violence. And, and I would try to tell them that, you know, hey, it's not like what you see on television. It's actually, you know, there's a lot of great things about the United States. And then one of them asked me, well, do you know anybody who's been shot? And it it rocked me for a moment because as I thought about it, yeah, I do. I, I, I know up to about five people who've been shot and killed in the U.S. Most recently, two of my high school friends were shot and killed in a traffic argument that spun out of control. And in that moment, I realized, you know, wow, you know, maybe maybe they're closer to right. Um, and shortly after that, I, I read an article in The Wall Street Journal that the year before, there had been 37,000 people who died of bullet wounds in the United States. Uh, and the number was so large, it, it, I, I thought it was a typographical error. I didn't think it could be real, but it turns out it is real. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became very passionate about the topic of violence and gun violence in particular. Um, and the main thesis I had was, well, why are we still shooting people? This is a technology that's hundreds of years old. Every other industry has changed dramatically because of technology, right? We, we fought the Revolutionary War in the 1700s with bullets. And back then medicine was, you know, a shot of whiskey and a saw or, or transportation was at best a horse, right? And now we're flying in jet airplanes and we've got amazing medical technology, yet we're still resolving our disputes with bullets. And it just didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and of course, like you saw the facts, you saw, a, a chance to improve, but how like you were 23 years old when the idea came alive just because of conversation with friends. 
Can you maybe get us back to the conversation in your mind where you started developing the idea and actually bringing the idea to light? I mean, that's something where a lot of people struggle, just seeing a fact, seeing a problem, but then actually turning it into, into a real case that can be improved, right? Yeah, the most important thing in, in my belief is to just start working on it. Um, if you wait until you have the perfect business plan, you will never do it. Uh, mm -hmm. I think many people, um, you know, they, they think, well, I, I don't know enough about the problem or I'm not an expert. Uh, but it turns out frequently the biggest changes come from people that are not experts in a field because the experts, they know how things are done today. And it's very hard for them to think about how things would be done differently. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're, when you're young and you're new to a field, uh, you ask a bunch of seemingly dumb questions, but you're, you're challenging the status quo. Uh, so in my case, it was, now I actually, I did not invent the taser. Uh, it had been invented way back in the late 1960s, the early versions by a NASA scientist, literally a rocket scientist who had worked on the Apollo moon landing project. Um, but for a variety of reasons, it had failed twice. You know, many times early generations of technology just are buggy and they don't quite work <laughs> right. Uh, and, and so I called him as part of my research. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in neurobiology. So, uh, as I thought about different approaches for how you might, uh, how you might stop somebody without shooting a bullet in them, I mm -hmm. immediately gravitated towards some sort of way to incapacitate their nervous system. And I'd seen the taser in some movies. Uh, and so immediately, ah, electricity would probably be the right way to do this. And literally, I just looked him up. Uh, now, <laughs> you wouldn't even know how to do this even if you're an American. We used to call 411 on the telephone to get somebody's number before the Internet. <laughs> uh, so, so I literally I dialed 411 and I got this guy's phone number and I called him out of the blue. He was 73 and I was 23. And wow. I just started asking a bunch of questions like, you know, whatever happened to this taser? It seems like a great idea. And next thing I know, he invites me to come visit him. He lives about an hour and a half from where my parents live. And next thing I know, you know, I, we'd agreed to start a new company in his garage and he would teach me, obviously at 73 years old, he was at the end of his career and mm -hmm. he agreed to teach me everything he knew about tasers. And uh, he got some stock in the company and some, some patent royalties. And that began a journey that, you know, now here I'm 25 years later. Uh, and we've, we've, we've got a pretty big impact. Most police agencies, pretty much every major police agency in the English speaking world Currently mm -hmm. uses taser weapons, and we're rapidly expanding now uh, into continental Europe uh, and Asia. Right. I mean, uh, Germany is probably one of the few countries where you still um, probably don't use tasers like in a in a more uh, spreaded way. I think uh, we, there are still chances that that's still going to happen. I mean, Germany is always very strict with external devices coming into the country, I guess. But um, but that's I, I love the story. It's amazing how how you actually try to interview a, an expert on the field that's probably two, three generations older, but that could still help you improve the process of building the taser. Maybe, maybe it should just deep dive on there because I think that could be very interesting to also the listeners. What was the, like the conversation like to make you um, actually enable him to meet you, right? What, what were like sayings that you, that you mentioned in the conversation that you were able to meet him in person, that you were actually able to talk with him and that you actually founded the company together with him or more or less used him as an advisor. What was like the internal conversation you had with him on the telephone? Yeah, so what's actually really funny is the hardest conversation was with myself. Uh, I mm -hmm. did not 
want to call him because I was having these ideas about how I might approach this market. And in my head, I thought of him as a competitor. And yeah. I had built up, well, you know, I've seen his product in movies uh, and some American police were using the taser, but very few. I thought it was bigger than it was. It turns out that it had been a complete commercial failure. But I was afraid to reach out to him at first because I thought, well, he might steal my ideas. Like, I need to operate in secrecy. And I remember I was having dinner one night with my father, and we were having a conversation about this. And my, my dad looked at me and he said, Rick, you're crazy. This guy is a NASA scientist. He's been at this for like 25 years. He has learned so much. Like you can only learn from him. I guarantee, you know, you're not, he's, you're not going to give him some new idea he's going to steal. You have everything to gain. And in that moment, I realized, yeah, he's probably right. So I, I called him and ultimately, yeah, it, it turned out, you know, he was pretty frustrated that he'd been at it for 25 years uh, and had never really gone anywhere. And I think part of that was, you know, sometimes great inventors don't make good entrepreneurs. Every time he raised money, he would typically invest it in inventing the products. Well, that's an important yeah. piece, but you also need to build sales and marketing and uh, building a company is different than building a product. So um, I think part of it, too, helped that, you know, he he was open to new ideas because he was near the end of his career and mm -hmm. he didn't want to see his life's work go away. Uh but it's, it was really strange. I mean, we were 50 years different in age when I first right. called him. And uh, so the bigger problem was convincing myself to make the call. Mm -hmm. And I, I still struggle with that. I mean, I've had a numerous occasions where you envision, oh, this is somebody that will compete with me. I, I, you, know, you know, you you sort of demonize them in your own head. Uh, and every time I've I've gone through one of these and then I ultimately reach out to someone, it always works out far better than I expected. Right. So I was that, the bigger problem than him. Once we started talking, he was pretty open to, uh, especially because, you know, I was pretty non-threatening. When you're a 23-year-old, uh, people view you as kind of a just an older kid. Right, right. And, and we especially because we also have a young audience, right? I mean, I know from like my environment that there are a lot of startups being built where founders, especially young founders, first time founders, they don't want to sell the idea to anybody, right? They want to, they want to first build the product. They want to first build the, the, the idea in the team and then uh, enhance it to other people, right? And that's the strategy that you actually did not do right you like from the first moment you try to like look for experts look for the right market from a from an immediate standpoint and you didn't actually hide the idea in your own in your own little circle and it feels like that has been something that has grow, like actually enabled you to grow way faster than if you would just have done it by your own right oh for sure for sure yeah it's very tempting as human beings i think we have this instinct that we tend to see more threats in the world than there actually are And to this day, I still struggle with it where, you know, if you if you stop thinking of everybody as a competitor and open your mind to, you know, how you might collaborate with different people, uh, it, it usually helps propel you. Uh, right. And, and I, I think it's just an aspect of psychology that ends up holding many people back. Right, right. And maybe f to follow up here, like what has enabled you back then? From like the starting point, of course, you made you made the talk with him to talk about the, his expert view on it. But what has made you actually grow from zero to like one, two? What was like the step that you did in order to actually drive sales across the country? What was like a movement that you would recommend? 
Yeah. Uh, so again, the, the first uh, thing for me was I decided not to interview for jobs, which mm -hmm. sounds very strange because I was just coming out of school. And once I had this idea, the normal thing everybody did was they would go through the university to start interviewing for jobs. And as right. this idea started to stick, I realized it's already a crazy idea. And when I have to explain to my friends and parents, I'm going to pursue this crazy idea. It's already, you know, I'm going to get pressure from people because everybody tells you no, by the way. Every new idea, you should just expect, you know, the world is 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 just, it reacts to new ideas by saying no. And so you mm -hmm. just have to get used to that and, and you just have to ignore it. Um, but I realized if I had interviewed for jobs, then I might get job offers. And now I'd have to make a decision between, well, do I pursue this crazy idea that, I don't really know much about, or do I take this job? And I figured that would be a very difficult, a harder choice. And then I'd have to justify again to my parents and others. So <laughs> I just decided, you know what? I'm not gonna interview for jobs. And my plan was, I said, I'm gonna pursue this for one year. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but every morning I'll get out of bed and I will just try to figure out what is the one thing I can do today to move this closer to a real product. Uh, and if it fails, well, no big deal. A year into it, you know, I could basically look at it as, you know, some people take a year off to go skiing or to, you know, go travel through Europe if you're an American or through America right. if you're European. So this was like sort of my year for myself that I would take this risk. And that mind, that mind frame really helped me to just get rid of all the other distractions. Cause that's, that's the most important thing is when you just say, I'm going to work on this, you know, mm -hmm. I moved home with my parents. Uh, so I didn't have to worry about, you know, paying the bills and my right, dad had right. been an entrepreneur, so he, he was pretty supportive. Uh, and then the thing you do is just every day you get out of bed and you think, okay, what can I do today that will knock down the risks between, you know, where we are and getting a product to market? So for example, with the, with the taser weapon, once mm -hmm. I met Jack, uh, that was the inventor, his name was Jack Cover. um, we we started to discuss, I shared with him my idea and he gave me some feedback. He said, well, that's a very interesting idea, but you know, there's a lot of unknowns. And then he mm -hmm. shared with me the history of the taser and what he thought it would take to make it successful. And the key was in the United States, we have a regulation that if a device shoots out a projectile by an mm -hmm. explosive, it is, it is considered a firearm. And the original okay. taser used an explosive, so it was considered a firearm. Now that means there's all sorts of regulations, including you can only sell it through gun stores. Okay. Well, if you use something besides gunpowder, if you use compressed air, for example, like an air gun, that mm -hmm. is not considered a firearm. And that means you could sell it anywhere, not just in gun stores. And so his belief was that if we created a new taser that did not use gunpowder, it would be commercially successful because we could sell it in normal stores, not only gun stores where gun lovers go. Got and it. It seemed like, a, okay, it's an interesting idea. So what is the thing we need to do? Well, mm -hmm. as we dug in, we, you know, he showed me letters from the federal government of the United States that said, in order to make this ruling, they would have to see a prototype. They would not give us a legal ruling from a drawing or descriptions. So that was a very focusing moment where we realized, okay, step one, we have to build a prototype to send to the government to get the legal approval to be able to sell. And right. for the first three months, we focused on solving only that problem. And I moved to Tucson, Arizona, where he lived. I lived in a trailer park and we worked in his garage <laughs> every day, you know, and this was what he was perfectly suited for as an inventor. We uh, we would 
we would work on building prototypes. So it was sort of like a mad science experiment. Uh, and as I look back, it's amazing how fast we moved as a startup. So we started together on sep uh, I'm sorry, on October 15th was mm -hmm. the day we signed our agreement. One month later, on November 15th, we shipped the prototype oh, to the wow. to Washington yeah. D.C. So from zero to a functional prototype in 30 days. Wow, I'm now, amazing. Yeah, now I've got a company with a thousand people, and to get to a prototype takes a year with a team <laughs> of like 15 people working on it. It's it's pretty amazing when you're a startup what you can do. Right, it's the dynamics of, of of just being so passionate about what you do at the beginning, right? And I'm sure you're also still as passionate as you were back then. But of course, like the the movement of just coming out of college and just uh, of university and just going for an idea that has not been developed before, I think that's something that a lot of young people want to strive for. And I love the story of you actually. That's something that Tim Ferriss actually mentions a lot in his podcast as well. Of like. In order to drive successful businesses, you have to at first think about risk, risk mitigation. So you think about what are like the risk factors that could pull out, could pull us out of business and then see how you can actually mitigate the risks of not failing, right? Instead of just thinking about the success, it's also thinking about like the risk side and really understanding what are the risks of the company and understanding how you can, how you can go through the possible risks that could and like could actually destroy your business, correct? Yep. Yeah. So for us, it was, um, you, you know, it, it was both a risk and an opportunity. If we could get right. the federal government to give us the certification, this was not a firearm, then we could sell it through these other stores. And that solving one problem at a time, you know, gives you a lot of focus. Right. Uh, and the other superpower that uh, you have as a startup is is just simply you don't have complex decision processes. You know, it's two <laughs> guys in a garage. You can try and move. Oh, that failed. We go this direction. As you get bigger teams, you spend a lot more time. You have to communicate. You've got to get a, a lot more input from different people. But, and, and frankly, today, if we invent a new taser weapon, you know, that's a $200 million a year business. I, we can't afford to take risks in launching something new that's not been very carefully tested, et cetera. When you're a right. startup, you know, when you have zero sales, you can, uh, you can just move faster and take more risk. And that allows you to be much much more nimble uh, than the big companies. The number one thing that now keeps me awake at night is I'm afraid that we're going to start acting like a big company and that mm -hmm. some other innovator will come along and, you know, and <laughs> that's how, that's how mindset changes when, when your company gets bigger. I love that. That's, 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 that's very cool. I mean, Generally, what, what, what's very interesting about your site, I think, is now that, of course, throughout the time, but especially from the beginning on where you sit in the garage and you develop a product, but still now you develop or you use technology to do something better, right? I mean, that's also something that, that your book is about. And maybe we can, uh, we can deep dive here a little bit because I think it's, it's fascinating, um, to, to get an overview of what the book is also going to be about and see how that's connected to the roadmap of, of your company so far. Um, maybe can you give us an insight on what your book actually is about and how, how the idea of the book came along, um, besides building your company? Because I think they are quite interconnected, connected, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I was at a dinner with a number of entrepreneurs, and um, they were doing, you know, one of these conversation starters. And mm -hmm. the question was, what is one thing that you believe that no one else believes? And when it came around to my turn, I said, I believe that we are getting close to the end of war and the end of killing. And people at first looked at me like, are you crazy? 
Um, but then I started to lay it out that, uh, you know, if you think about it, where we accept that it's okay to kill people is only because we lack the technology we can see in science fiction to stop somebody without killing them. So mm -hmm. we live in this world where we accept this bizarre paradox that protection of one person means killing another. Mm -hmm. And the more I've dug in and done the research on the you know, book, turns out to be a big project, uh, and you learn a lot along the way. So it's not just the idea you start with. So I originally thought this idea was a little bit crazy, uh, that mm -hmm. I was swimming against you know, sort of the tendencies of, of humanity. But it turns out the exact opposite is true. Uh, I came across the work of Steven Pinker, who is a professor at Harvard, who wrote this mm -hmm. book called Better Angels of Our Nature. And he documents that the rates of violence in the world are down not by a little bit, but by a factor of around 500. Meaning even if you lived in, in like medieval Europe, which we mm -hmm. tend to all romanticize as, oh, you know, knights and damsels and weren't, wasn't life <laughs> great back then. But it turns out, no, life was in incredibly violent. Uh, like the honor code of medieval Europe was basically you kill someone before they kill you. If they insult you, you challenge them to you know, fight to the death, et cetera. And the, the risk of dying at the hands of another human in violence was 500 times higher than it is today. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, we've seen it used to be very normal, like most communities around the world accepted like public torture and, uh, you know, war was almost a continuous state of existence between you know, at first tribal communities and then larger nation states, right? The you know, Napoleon's like top job description was like as the leader of France to execute war and on behalf of the honor <laughs> of the nation. Right. And we just, we don't, we don't, we don't think like that anymore. Um, mm -hmm. You know, those types of wars have largely gone away. I mean, you have, you know, minor examples uh, compared to history, like the Russian, you know, invasion of Crimea probably being the last one. Uh, but that pales in comparison to the incredibly bloody wars of the past. And so I think we've gotten to a point now where, like, in your or my daily life, mm -hmm. it would be a very bizarre thing for us to see somebody get killed. It would be right. something very much out of the ordinary, other than right. we might see it in movies or entertainment, or we see it in the news because we live in this interconnected world where one violent act, you know, feels local. But right. the fact is, we're actually heading this direction. And so my, I think the research for the book really underlined my core thesis. You know, we're 99 percent the way there. We've gotten rid of most of the violence in the world. If we really focus on this last one percent, uh, you know, we could get to a point where we just no longer accept this conventional wisdom that we will always be the violent naked apes that kill each other. I, I think right. we can get and we're close. That's interesting, because I think like over the time, of course, people get get to into get to do, get to be introduced more to like the news and they see how many people are killed in different countries we have terrorism we have different problems around the world social instabilities or if you look at france or other countries but still we have weapons that actually can kill people within a second right i mean and and they actually produce social instabilities more or less like what do you think like why are why have weapons actually improved right over time like back then we used blades or whatever to to kill people now we use uh, now we use guns and and different different uh, weapons that are way faster way more brutal uh, in a way and, and and just way more efficient if you can say that to kill people why ha why have people from a psychological perspective shifted 
to getting even better at producing weapons? What has the reasons for that? What has been the reason for that? Yeah, yeah. So, so I sort of divide human history into three phases. Mm -hmm. uh, the first phase goes from the beginning of time through 1961. And in that phase, weapons became ever more deadly. And frankly, if you think about sort of brutish early civilizations, the civilization with the most powerful weapons was the one that would come to dominate, right? right? So as soon as you had firearms, you know, when Europeans showed up in Africa with firearms, they were able to wreak havoc, enslave the people and begin the slave trade to America, et cetera. Like basically the, when you have a world where conflict is common, having deadlier mm -hmm. weapons makes you more powerful and will make your society more successful. Right. If we follow that trend, the reason I, I stop it in 1961 is that was the year that the Soviet Union detonated the largest nuclear weapon ever. The, they called it Tsar Bomba. At, uh, <laughs> I think it was 50 megatons. And just to put that in perspective, I've got a graphic in the book that, that compares it. That is the equivalent of 3,000 of the bombs we dropped on Hiroshima in one oh, weapon. Wow. And Hiroshima is already such an unthinkable humanitarian disaster that I think the logic of building deadlier weapons no longer made sense. And frankly, the world stopped doing it. You know, there was no mm -hmm. point in making deadlier weapons. So from 1961 through the present, we've been much more focused on building weapons of precision. So we're actually mm -hmm. trying to kill less people. And we see that, you know, starting in, in, in Vietnam, maybe from carpet bombing, going to more precision bombing. You go to Gulf, you know, the, the wars in the Middle East with, you know, these TV guided bombs and GPS guided bombs. And now... We even go down to like these predator drones that can hover on the far side of the world and drop a Hellfire missile onto a car or one person. Mm -hmm. But I think we're getting near the end of precision. Uh, there's a great uh, video if you go online to autonomousweapons.org where mm -hmm. they show a video, a concept video of a drone that's got a small explosive that could just go down and assassinate one person. Now, objectively, as you and I talk about this, that's probably better than dropping a missile on a car, because if it's a terrorist with children in the car, right? It's right. the mathematics of morality. It's better to just kill one highly targeted person than have collateral damage. But when you watch the video, you get this pit in your stomach where it feels this just isn't right. Like to be able to sit on one side of the globe and just you know, remotely blow holes in people's heads on the far right. side of the globe. And I think the reason is we realize once we have that level of technology, why couldn't we build a drone or a robot that could capture that person alive? Right. And that way, if it is a terrorist, we might learn something from them. And if it's not a terrorist, we don't turn their whole family and their whole community against us because we didn't, you know, we didn't kill somebody. And and so as I've gotten into the to the book, you know, you always run into people and say, well, well you know, we need to kill people in war. Well, mm -hmm. that's still true, but I'm I'm not sure that killing is the best approach. And the types of conflicts we see today. Killing is actually counterproductive. When we kill people, we create more enemies than we have destroyed in the act. And, and so it's not just out of kindness that we should stop killing. It's if we invest in building more humane weapons, it elevates our own humanity and it allows us to win hearts and minds. Because I think the big industrialized wars don't make sense. If the United States and Russia or China ever go to war, mm -hmm. you know, God help us all. It's illogical because it could very quickly escalate to the end you know, end of life. And I think rational people see that. So war, it was a rational choice for Napoleon. It is not mm -hmm. a rational choice for Putin or Trump uh, to engage in a major war. So now if we think about what are the types of conflicts we're seeing, you know, we really need to start investing in different types of weapons because I don't think conflict goes away. 
But I do right, think right. the way we resolve it can change. That's interesting because like um, conflict isn't going to leave, right? I mean, people are made out of energy and energy has to go somewhere. I mean, from a, so also from a psychological perspective. And, and of course, if energy is too high, it ends up in wars and it ends up in, in, in brutal um, brutal conversations, if you can, if you can mention it like that, that end up in, 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 in heavy war and, and killing. Um, and I love the, the idea of actually using technology in order to find the people that are actually giving their energy to produce war, but don't kill them because you can learn something from them. Maybe you can, maybe you can deep dive here again. What, what do you think? Like, how can how can technology help here to understand why war is actually happening and how can technology help to reduce the chances of of bringing the energy too far into into like those brutal brutal happenings that we see over the globe well if we think about like let's think about europe not so mm -hmm. long ago you know most of europe was embroiled in near continuous war right. and yet today it's it's largely unthinkable that Germany and France right. would go into an all-out war. So I think we've successfully, uh, you know, part of it, I think, is the stabilization that comes paradoxically from the presence of nuclear weapons sort of takes the opportunity for war to be a winning proposition away. Mm -hmm. Now, war is no longer a winning proposition, you know, if for major nation states. You still see it in these less developed nations. But I think right. what we're also seeing is, you know, as people between travel and global businesses, you know, and certainly people can rant against the system of globalization having negatives, but it's mm -hmm. positives far outweigh the negatives. You know, I think there was a, uh, a statement at one point that no two countries that had McDonald's had ever gone to war with each other. <laughs> Once you start to share, you know, cultural interests and business interests, you know, You, you sort of create this interconnected global web. It was much easier to go to war with the other guy when, you know, you could only vilify them because they were scary and remote. Uh, right. And so I think that the nature of the interconnected world that we live in is building relationships across borders. So mm -hmm. like today, there's a lot of rivalry between the United States and China. But as I look at it, like it's still it's unthinkable to me that that would escalate to a war. And it's not mm -hmm. just because of the nuclear deterrent, but there are so many intertwined economic and other interests that can stand that would stand up against it and say, look, this is, you know, this is crazy. Whether it's just using a simple case, Apple with its iPhone production in China, right? right. Or, you know, uh, just across the board, as you build out these relationships, I think the concept of, of major wars starts to go away. And then, at least from a logic perspective, And then you need to think about, you know, what are the types of conflicts that we see, uh, which tend to be now with non-nation states, like whether it's ISIS or, you know, some other sort of terrorism uh, sort of group. And in, in that case, I think killing is actually counterproductive uh, right. because it also, it, it, you know, in this case, it's interesting. These ideologies have managed to twist death into a positive, mm -hmm. right? That it's actually, you know, some of these people that engage in these rather extreme acts would rather die because they see it as this glorious end that then transports them into this wonderful afterlife. Whereas getting captured by a drone or a robot and going to prison is nowhere near as glorious. I actually think it's a better deterrent. And then it right. doesn't end up inflaming because no matter when you're killing people, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. Right. And I think in, in the Middle East, you know, NATO has bombed something like eight weddings, right? Mm. That turns entire you know, thousands of people against 
what you're trying to do. Uh, and that doesn't happen, or at least I think it, the propensity for it to happen is much lower if we're finding tools to go around and not kill people. So I'll, I'll sort of end with this thought. If you wanted to, if you want to defeat the U.S. military today, like go back to Saddam Hussein, lots mm -hmm. of, you know, tanks and artillery was not very successful. But you take a 12-year-old suicide bomber walking up to U.S. checkpoint today, and there's nothing they can do. Like, right. You know, my son was in Afghanistan, 19 years old, and all he had was an M16. What is he supposed oh, no. to do when you have an enemy who sends a pregnant woman or a child walking up to that checkpoint? He's got to make a decision. Do I right. use my M16 and kill this person or not? And I talked to numerous people as I was researching the book who had been in that unwinnable situation. And so part of the, part of the purpose of the book is I'm pushing governments around the world we should put more creative energy into solving this problem of how do we have better tools that don't kill? You know, the United mm -hmm. States is, is planning to spend $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years to rebuild our nuclear weapons arsenal. Wait, wait a minute. My son's in the actual war that, that he's engaged in or the conflict. He can't stop a 12-year-old without killing him. Yet, and we're not investing in solving that problem. And yet yeah. we're going to build a new fleet of nuclear submarines so that, you know, hopefully weapons that would never, ever be used. So I'm trying to shift people's thinking to accept right. that, you know, the first thing I do is get the crazy idea accepted that, no, we, we can find ways to do our missions, whether it's police, whether it's military. You know, in Germany, for example, we the taser weapons are currently used mostly by the special police, the uh, mm -hmm. SEK teams. Right. But yet most patrol officers are walking around with a pistol and... Yeah. I ask the question, now again, this fits back to my business, so I do have a self-interest here, but whether it's a taser or something else, if we're going to give a cop a gun, we should give them every tool to avoid using it. Right. Uh, and eventually, I think the non-lethal tools will be so good, you're not going to carry a gun anymore, just like you know, police officers used to carry swords around. Well, right. you know, I'm talking hundreds of years ago. Right. Um, right. They don't do that anymore. They got outdated. And I think we can make killing an outdated concept. It's going to take you know, decades. But we have to start. Yeah, it's the same. I mean, the idea is literally like the same that you had, right? When you were 23 years old, you had an idea and you actually, with the first step, actually calling calling Jack or what was his name and calling Jack to, to, to make it to make it realistic, to bring out the idea to light. And I think it's, 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 it's fantastic that you already started bringing the idea of not killing people anymore to light now, because of course in 30, 40 years, when also the whole entrepreneurial scene gets bigger and bigger, people get more creative, people have more influence, especially entrepreneurs have influence on politics. I think there's a lot of connectivity that could help now to start the idea bringing to light in, in the moment now to enhance on, on the idea further to maybe make your vision realistic in 30, 40 years. So I think um, starting now could be a good step. And I mean, we have a lot of entrepreneurs who are very young, who are very interested in in changing the world in a good way. And I think using using ideas to um, to to benefit to benefit the young generation to explore entrepreneurship in a, in a good way could could be a very good connection, I suppose. And um, maybe to to also um, maybe integrate one more idea before before we maybe you can maybe you can add something to it. Is I love the idea of we already have complexity in different systems, right? China is connected to the United States. We already have different uh, connections, different collabora collaborations between different countries. Why don't we use them for good? Why don't why don't we use them to actually stop killing in the future? <laughs>
Yeah, you know, the other thing I would say, knowing that you have an audience of young entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, maybe I'm biased, but I don't think there's any greater impact you can have in the world than to become an entrepreneur. And sometimes, you know, uh, there's a negativity about business. Like I right. just spoke at, at New York University last week and there were mm-hmm. protesters there against me uh, because they, they were angry about the police and, you know, ideas like the taser, sometimes, you know, police have misused it. It has been used to abuse people. Now it's also saved a lot of lives. But what was interesting is one of the protesters stepped up to ask a question in the forum. And he was very focused on how much money I've made. And because I've made money, the implication was that I couldn't be trusted or I was somehow evil. (laughs) And the way I answered that was I said, well, look, I wanna solve the problem of gun violence. I could go two directions. I could go start a nonprofit organization. And that's, you know, people tend to idealize this like, oh, yes, like that's a purer motive. Like go start a government organization that's going to lobby the government on gun control issues. Well, number one, a lot of people are already doing that and mm-hmm. it's having pretty limited impact. But on a practical basis, if you go start a nonprofit, what you actually spend most of your time doing is begging for money because it takes right. money to do things. So I know friends who work in nonprofit, it's brutally hard and they have to go beg for every dollar they get. When you start a business, you basically pick a problem. My problem is violence, but I turn it into a self-funding business model. So yes, today I now have a thousand people working on this problem. My company's worth three and a half billion dollars. We have $350 million in cash and I can deploy those resources Mm-hmm. At building these weapons, I could never have raised this amount of money in a nonprofit, but now it's <laughs> right. a self-funding engine. And by the way, we haven't just done tasers. We've also done wearable body cameras that are getting pretty widely deployed. Actually, we're seeing faster camera deployments in uh, in Germany than we've seen with taser weapons. Okay. But each of these cases, you know, when I see young people, there's sometimes this negative tone towards business. And I say, forget that. If you want to have an impact in the world, I mean, look at Bill Gates. What he has impacted, he's had bigger impact than Barack Obama or any other president. I mean, ultimately, elected officials are important. We need good people to go do that. Right. But, you know, they're still beholden to and their actual ability to change at the government scale is nowhere near what it's been for a guy like Bill Gates, who, number one, through the technology he created, is enabling, you know, you and me to talk from far sides of the globe right now right. You know, using computers. Uh, and yet he then took that wealth. And now he's you know, personally going to wipe diseases off the face of the earth. Like if that's right. not positive impact for humanity, I don't know what is. Now we can all criticize Bill Gates as imperfect as we all are. But <laughs> if you're a young person picking how you want to leave a mark in the world, there is no way to do more good than to create a good business that solves problems and you know, creates jobs and wealth. Right. And I mean, uh, it all perfectly fits, I think, to something I think I'm not sure whether it's Roosevelt or another person that that once said, as soon as you have money, you do, you can see which character the person has. Right. I mean, you can look at Bill Gates. You can also look at yourself as soon as you have a a, a funder, like a fundamental uh, plan on what to do with the money. And uh, if you have a vision to fulfill that, I mean, there's enough room to use money for the good. And I think uh 
of course we are, we have a big big discussion in germany i mean the states is far further in case of entrepreneurship and to support good ideas i mean in germany we still are struggling in in a couple of steps in order to really bring good ideas to light and really support them on a global level so we have lots lots of stuff to do there as well but i think using good ideas to do good and actually building on the money enhancement as well can be can be fundamentally uh, supportive for for humankind in general right Yeah, I mean, there's look, there's good people and bad people right, in every of walk of life. Sure, there's some business people who are only focused on money, and they might do things that are not in the best interest of the world. Right. But like when you do it right, like it's possible to find business ideas where you solve problems that matter. You create a business model that creates the funding so you can you know, deploy the resources on solving that problem, and mm -hmm. you get to make some money yourself along the way. So you know. I think it's a pretty marvelous opportunity. And, and the best the best chance to, to do this is really young people. You know, when you're in your early 20s, that is the best time to take risk. It's much harder when you're in your 30s and you've got kids and you've got, you know, financial obligations. It's much harder to take the kind of risk. Plus, if you look, I actually had a slide that uh, I've used in a number of presentations, and I show a picture of Albert Einstein. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, you know, the famous picture of the gray-haired man Is this the smartest guy who ever lived? No. The smartest guy who ever lived was actually Albert Einstein at 20, I believe 23 to 26. That's when he did all of his work. His five big papers came out, I think, by the time he was 26 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, like people in their young 20s, those are the people that change the world. And so don't squander your youth working for somebody else. Like now right. is the time to go try things. And if you fail, it's okay. It actually, in today's world, it makes you more valuable. If you go to a job interview as an entrepreneur who's tried things and failed and learned from them, I guarantee you're more, you're more interesting than the person who just went out and caught a job. Absolutely. I mean, I can totally agree. I mean, I started the company last year and of course you have to go through a lot of criticism and, and different uh, checkpoints, but I think uh, mentally being strong and, and, and being convinced of your idea and your vision is, is fundamentally important. Maybe to, to deep dive you on, on before we go into like the last Q and A uh, session. Um, how did you overcome criticism in that part? Because you also mentioned now, of course, all the good ideas were, were born in the twenties, more or less of the people, how like all those people that were quite successful. And I, I mentioned you as well, you guys went through like a lot of criticism and you're still going through a lot of criticism when people approach you and say, you're do doing it for the money. How do you overcome those situations and what keeps you motivated in those times? Yeah, I think you just, um, you have to find the right balance. You have to listen to what they're saying and then also just tune it out. Um, yeah. So early on, the, the, the harshest criticisms were back at the beginning when mm -hmm. we were just first getting started. Because, look, this is a crazy idea. We're going to go build electric guns to like, stop. That, that sounds nuts. Um, but you just, you know, you have to believe at its core. If you if you find if, if your logic analysis is strong. You do want to make sure, like, look, there's a lot of bad ideas in the world, too. So you might have a legitimately bad idea. You've got to be a little introspective. But if your logical basis is sound, you just have to accept that all new ideas, initially, people are going to say no. Uh, Peter Diamandis, who's one of my mentors, who started the XPRIZE Foundation that mm -hmm. created you know, private space travel, has a saying that, you know, the day before it's a breakthrough, it's just another crazy idea. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, I'll give you one other example. When we started doing body cameras, wearable cameras, mm -hmm. we did it 
to address the concern about police officers abusing people with our taser weapons. Best way to stop it is to record what they're doing. We right. realized very quickly that using the cloud and the internet to store and manage all those videos was gonna be a far superior approach to every, in, in America, there's 18,000 police departments. And if they all had to figure out how to build and run their own computer servers, it would never stay. <laughs> but when we first started, our customers told us, what do you mean? We're gonna give government data and store it on a private computer. I had customers tell me, we can't do that, that's illegal. Mm -hmm. But it, it actually wasn't illegal, it was just a new way of thinking. And that was right. one where we had to, our own customers, had we listened to our customers, we would have stopped. But this was one where it's like, you know what? And I could look at industry after industry where the internet has come in and changed the way the industry operates. And there we just had to believe no, our customers are wrong. This is an emotional reaction because they're thinking of digital property the same way they think of like drugs and, and guns and other physical evidence that they have to keep under lock and key. And if we could prove to them that we could actually do a better job protecting their data than they could do themselves, that just like I put my money at a bank because it's safer there than in a safe at my house, you know, we mm -hmm. had to develop the right intellectual framework. Um, but you just, a lot of your customers will tell you no. You need to make sure you've got a solid logical framework. And if you believe it's right, then you just need to tune out all the disbelievers. Right, and believe in, in the stuff you do, right? I mean, uh, there's a lot of ideas that didn't come out of the reaction of the customer. It was really born out of big visions and big ideas. So I think I love that approach. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. Maybe now going to like the Q and A. What's what's um, a la like a final book that you wanna you wanna share with your listeners? Of course, your own book is is coming out soon. We will uh, have a, a short talk about that as well. Still, but what's a book that you read that you would recommend to the listeners? I, I think Steven Pinker's book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, Bill Gates called it the most optimistic book he'd ever read, and I have to agree. It's it's amazing how much better the world is than it was in the past, and we just need to stop this, this negative drum that says, oh, the world is terrible and it's getting worse. No, it's mm -hmm. not. The world is better than it's ever been, and it's getting better every day, and That doesn't mean we should just stop working to make it better. That's what we do as people. We try to make right. the world better than it, than it was. And uh, yeah, so I think that's the best book I've ever read. Fantastic. We'll also put that in the show notes. Um, do you have any habit that you want to share that is exceptional to you that helps you being awake and being ready for the day? Um, so I would say uh, that a realization that people are more important than things um, and that's at work, like the relationships with other people is the most important thing in the world. It is the key to our happiness. You know, there's mm -hmm. tons of studies that show that up to a certain level, like, look, money makes you happier when you go from extreme poverty to be able to support yourself. But once right. you get above like $75,000 a year, there's no correlation with more money and more happiness. Right. And that, I think, also makes me a more effective leader at work when you realize, ultimately, even at a company, It's just a collection of people. And when you think about the importance of the relationships between those people, that is the most important thing in your life and in their lives. And I think it helps make you a better leader as well. If you overly focus on just the metrics or the money or the other things around you, you lose the opportunity to connect with people on a human level. And if you connect with them on a human level, they will be 
far more productive uh, than anything you could do with you know dollars and cents. Love it, love it. Maybe one uh, one last final question. Um, how do you keep your, your to do structure? Do you have a certain tool that you recommend? Uh, you know, actually, one of the best things I've done um, is I use my home screen of my phone as my inbox. So once you get to a certain level, uh, there's just you could spend your all of your time just responding to emails. And I try to make sure that, you know, um, I don't want to spend my entire life responding, just you know, responding back to things that right. cripples your ability to make forward progress. And so on my home screen, I have it organized from text messages to other apps I use to communicate. And I only worry about the top four apps that I'm going to try to clear, you know, the, the messages. And uh -huh. the only one I get to consistently every day is text messages because they're, it forces people to be short and everybody who can ask something important to me knows how to text message me. Right. And then after that, I use an app called Voxer for voice communications. I literally, I have my phone off constantly. My phone does not ring ever. Unless I'm expecting an important customer call, I will turn it on for the day, but otherwise it's permanently in do not disturb. And I use a voice messaging app so that people can, it forces them to be shorter. Uh, mm -hmm. It takes a little getting used to, but when you call somebody, you start with, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? And there's all this sort of inefficient time. Right. Uh, so I, I found that by packetizing my communication flow, it allows me to, to take larger chunks of time where I just go offline. And I, you know, I am going to work on the problems I want to work on and not respond to all the little niggling issues the world wants to send my way. Fantastic. Love that approach. Rick, uh, we also almost come to time. So thanks a lot for your time. Really loved all the ideas, all the shared thoughts that you, you mentioned. Um, I can definitely recommend checking out the book. I also uh, could take a little preview and it's, it's, it's definitely fantastic. I will definitely put it in the show notes if people want to pre-order it. And if you have a couple last words that you want to mention to the, to the audience, please uh, do so. Otherwise, uh, we will say goodbye. <laughs> well, Max, uh, I had no idea you were as young as you are. I think this is great. Like, The youth today have so much power to to change the world. And I especially love the mission of what you're doing, which is, you know, really rallying young people to step forth. And, and you know, we can complaining about the world is easy. Changing right. it is hard, but it's the most rewarding thing you can do uh, as a person. So uh, I love what you're doing. Uh, and I would encourage all of your listeners, you know, don't squander your youth. Like, take a risk. Go out and, and try something bold. And even if it fails, you got a great story. And if it succeeds, you know, you've changed your life and you probably changed the life of lots of other people. Amazing. Thank you, Rick.